Spectrums brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're talking with Ron Luce. He's on the board of the National Alliance for Recovery Residences and the president of Ohio Recovery Housing. He's also the executive director of the John W. Clem Recovery House. We talk about addiction and recovery and the problems that recovering alcoholics and drug addicts face during the holiday season. We also talk about the expanding range of treatment programs available for recovery. Let's start off and talk about um, addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, and the holidays. I mean, we're right in the throes of, of Christmas and, and Kwanzaa and Hanukkah and New Year's, and, right. and everything sort of comes together <laughs> That has to be a critical time for it, people who struggle. It genuinely is a uh, problem. What you find is a lot of these folks, uh, and if I tend to say guys, it's because I work in a house with men, so sure. I don't, don't in sure. any way mean to be sexist. I just sure. sometimes forget. But um, a lot of these folks uh, deal with the fact that uh, they know that what they're doing with their addiction is causing problems for lots of people, So, uh, and including, of course, themselves. So they recognize that uh, they've hurt people, they've harmed people, and that causes a great deal of sadness. But in general, uh, a lot of people who have addictions suffer tremendous depression. And uh, at this time of year uh, with the holidays and memories and uh, knowing that people are upset with them, they know they're upset with themselves, this just tends to be a time when people do a little bit more reflecting. So I think that's part of it. Uh, also, of course, the reality is this time of year, at least in some of our states, is uh, kind of dark, overcast. And so all of the things converge to create a, a very difficult situation. A lot of these folks are away from family. They've cut themselves off from family. And so they're, they're, they're dealing with an awful lot of guilt, shame, uh, issues that have been created because of their addiction. And it's uh, perfectly uh, normal that they would be a little depressed or upset uh, at this time of year, and then you add the addiction to it, 
it's uh, it's pretty profound. And I know those people who are in recovery. Um, this this must be a time also of temptation. Uh, Absolutely, uh, so many things around the holidays right. involve uh, alcohol, at least uh, maybe not drugs, but but alcohol, uh, and and. That, that's got to be a, a testing time. It, it definitely is. And for a person who's very early in recovery, it's uh, particularly difficult because the, everything in our society says that this is a time when you party and you have fun and drinking is so much a part of the culture. Uh, I think for people who are into drugs, it's very similar. It's just part of the culture of having fun, or that's the perception that people have. And for people who have addiction, it goes way beyond fun. It goes beyond being able to control it. And uh, so uh, an awful lot of people are caught up in just not wanting to deal with recovery during the holidays. It's a, it's a real, it, it's when a lot of people uh, relapse. We'll put that on hold and address that uh, after the holidays. Right, sort exactly. Of the, exactly. The mentality. Uh, yeah. Or if if I can just do this just for the holidays, then I'll get back on my program yeah, it's, or whatever. In, in many ways, it's kind of like so many people watch their weight, you know? Sure. And during the holidays, they say, oh, you know, I'm just going to let it go. I'll deal with it. And then they do their New Year's resolution and they decide they're going to try to lose weight again. Um, for an addict, it's not that easy. And it's uh, once you get started again, it's, it's extremely difficult to start uh, back in the process of recovery because the, the addiction just wants to feed on itself all the time. And uh, it's extremely difficult for these folks. Let's talk about family members who may not be uh, addicted themselves, but maybe in the cycle of addiction, they may find themselves in that cycle of addiction uh, with with loved ones, uh, especially during the holidays. Ron, how, what would you say to them? How do they need to respond? Well, how they need to respond, I, that's difficult to say. All I, right. I would well, say— If somebody came to you and said, what do I do, Ron? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing is that a person's addiction affects everybody around them. It affects their friends. It affects their family. And there's no way to avoid that, really. Um, and, and certainly, if you're with someone who is addicted, the— being around them, being aware of them, thinking about them at the holidays is going to be tough because you want the best for them, and the reality is that they aren't choosing the best for themselves in many cases. So I, I think one of the things I get a lot of uh, parents of, of some of the men that I deal with uh, uh, who call, and, and they're very upset about their, their children and many of these children are grown people, but um, they're very upset about them. And one of the things I have to keep reminding them is that you can't fix this. It's not yours to fix. The, the individual who is addicted has to make a decision that he or she wants to change. So that's the first thing. You can't fix it. I think the first thing that I would encourage people to do is just remember that 
that this is a human being who is has the potential to be a wonderful human being. So many of these folks are, are tremendous people when you get them off the drugs. They can't help who they are at this point. Once they're addicted, it so controls their lives that they just can't make good decisions. And uh, I think it's unrealistic to think that you can fix it. I think all you can do is support them, love them, not enable them. And um, if they at any point get out of control, to make it clear that you are not going to tolerate that. that uh, and that's the, the tough thing at the holidays is to say to somebody, you can't be here. Isolation, you, you talked about that, and, and isolation and loneliness sort of go hand in glove with uh, addiction, at least from people that I've seen uh, Many, yes. over my career. And the more addicted they get, often they get uh, the more isolated they, they, they become. And that can become dangerous absolutely during especially any time but especially during the holiday period where we're all supposed to be family hearth <laughs> yeah. and kin right yeah well uh, yeah i think we all have this image of what is supposed to be like at the holidays and and people who are addicted have those same kinds of things many of them have those that sense of this is the holidays i'm supposed to be with family i'm supposed to be in this loving wonderful relationship and i'm not and so that feeds guilt and shame and all those kinds of things not all people who are addicted though are necessarily isolate what they tend to do is to hang out with other folks like themselves and okay. feed their habits um and that becomes kind of a family for them kind of a sick one but it, it you know it is it becomes what they have because everybody needs people. Uh, I didn't say that grammatically correctly, but <laughs> people need people. Sure. Um, at any rate, uh, I think when I, I've seen an awful lot of people who do isolate, and the reality is that when they isolate, uh, the depression feeds on itself if, if they are depressive types. The depression feeds on itself, and it they enter into that dark place of guilt and shame and self-loathing and, and all of that sort of thing. And, and it's a time of year when you see many suicides because a lot of these folks don't believe they're ever going to be able to change or that their lives are ever going to get better. It's a, it's a very, very sad situation. I mean, this happens year-round, but it's particularly strong, I think, during the holidays for those people who have that kind of mentality of, the holidays are special. Anybody who has a problem, it seems, whatever the problem, whether right. it's a, a health problem, a financial problem, a, a, a drug or alcohol problem, it all seems to get exacerbated exactly. th this time of year. And we all think, we all tend to think of this as such a happy, wonderful time. And I think in many ways it is, uh, but I think for a lot of people, an awful lot of people who deal with depression and addiction, it just, it's not a happy time. It's, it's, a, it's a time to, yeah, lots of pressure. I'm supposed to live up to these standards. I'm supposed to, to do what people expect of me, and I'm supposed to be a good person and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I don't feel that way about myself, sort of an attitude. I don't, I don't like me. I don't like the life I'm living, and yet I'm, I don't know how to get out of it. 
and I'm not sure I have the the courage or the strength to to do something about it. And even if I say so today, an hour from now, I might not feel that same way because that addiction is calling to me, constantly nagging at you. It never ends. And the addiction, whatever the substance or or activity, uh, gambling, eating, whatever, right. we can debate whether those are true addictions, but it, it, the idea is self-medication. Uh, the idea is that you uh, medicate with some other activity or, or substance Absolutely. Uh, to address an underlying problem that's not addressed. Am I correct? Absolutely. That? And I think, uh, you know, the more I... I work with these folks, and the more I deal with it, the more I'm convinced that that is really uh, such an important thing. Um, I'm very uh, convinced, well, I am convinced that underlying trauma is is very common with the people that I work with. Uh, I I can't tell you the number of men that I've worked with who have been sexually abused as children, physically abused as children, um, grew up in very uh, poor situations with uh, little discipline, little love, those kinds of things. And how you can see how that has played out through their entire lives. I think an awful lot of people who drink or use uh, illegal substances are trying to mask a very deep personal pain. And oftentimes they don't even know what it is. Right. Uh, particularly if it's childhood trauma. Right. But they are are in pain. And when they finally get some opportunity to begin to deal with that along with the addiction, I think it's much more likely that they're going to get well. You were talking about relapse and, and – I think one of the frustrating things for family members or uh, I saw it from the judicial perspective and you see it from other perspectives is, is dealing with relapse mm-hmm. uh, and, and how one uh, copes with the person who is relapsed, right. uh, how you want to help them yet not enable them. Right. That that's a fine line for the non-addicted person exactly to to walk. Is it not? Absolutely. And I I think those people who have never dealt with an an addiction really don't understand how powerful that drive is. And it for many people it never goes away. They just learn how to cope with it. It's right there and on your shoulder. It's, absolutely. It's, it's constant. It's one it's, whisper away in your ear. Exactly. And all it takes is a weak moment. But um, the reality is that most people who have addictions relapse. It's just part of the process. And those people who condemn people for a relapse really make it harder for that person to come back. It's, it's really important. If a person relapses, yes, that's a sad thing, and, and, and we wish it didn't happen. 
but being angry with the person and uh, challenging that person and making that person feel even worse than he or she probably already does is not very helpful. The, the ideal thing is to be supportive, encouraging, and get right back onto the path. That's, um, that's a critical thing. I think a lot of people don't understand that it's, I think statistically, two to five relapses are very common before a person uh, begins to really get his or her life under control and stay on that path. If they can stay on that path for five or more years, the chances are pretty good that they're, they're likely to stay on that. Not always, but uh, their chances get better. But during that first five years, it's, it's very common for people to relapse, and uh, it doesn't mean it's a failure. It just it can mean it's a, an opportunity for that person to recognize their weaknesses, recognize where they need stronger coping mechanisms, and get back on and do even better next time around. We still, as a society, I don't care how much we talk about rehab and and addictive services uh, for people with addictions. We we still, under all of that, consider it a moral failure. Absolutely. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah, We haven't got beyond that. No, obviously it's a disease and it's been documented to be such, but... But don't we as a society and as loved ones and as friends still see Absolutely. have that feeling? Well, all you have to do is watch much TV. <laughs> and, and, and you see how people are projected as human beings based on an addiction. Uh, we often we, – the stigma is still the derelict, the loser – the uh, no account, the person who is never going to amount to anything. You know, those are the kinds of images that we have fed to us all the time. And the reality is an awful lot of very fine people have had addictions and can come back and be very successful with their lives. Um, I think the other thing is that people think when they think of the word addict, they tend to picture people who are uh, unclean, laying out on a park bench, uh, no money, uh, drinking wine out of a bottle with a paper bag wrapped around it. Those images are just, I mean, yes, there are some people like that, but they're just totally unrealistic. There are lots of people who have addictions, who are living wonderful, who've had addictions, who are living wonderful, fulfilling lives and doing lots of great things. There are lots of very famous people who had addictions. I mean, we can start talking about movie stars and, <laughs> right. you know, you can talk about Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Judy Garland and uh, Frank Sinatra was quite a drunk. Uh, I mean, you know, the, sure. the list goes on and on and on. Our images don't really fit with reality. And we've got to get past that. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next.
educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to talk a little bit about uh, recovery programs, and, and I want to get later on to to recovery houses and, and what you're directly involved in. But I know that the men that you work with and the people that you've worked with over your career uh, go into various programs, uh, whether it's a 12-step program or another program. It seems to me that it used to be that the 12-step program uh, of AA was about it. Right. Uh, and, and that's what – I mean if you were in recovery, you had to do that program or, or you didn't have a program. Right. You uh, just did it on your own and, somehow. And that's not the case anymore, is it? No. Uh, there are lots of options. I think science has brought us a lot further forward. In, 1930s, in the 1930s, when uh, these uh, Dr. Bob and uh, these folks were really setting up the concept of AA, it was the only thing in town. Nobody quite knew what to do with people who had uh, alcohol addictions, and that was the main that was the main, main focus. Thing, right? Yeah, in terms of uh, drug addictions, I think that was just kind of you know people were just thrown to the gutters. But um, when when that started, it I mean it was a great concept. The idea that if you bring people together, you talk honestly and openly about what's going on with you, and you find ways to cope, you find something to believe in other than your drinking in that particular case, that people can get better. And it focused on this sense of community. I, I think people were so – we are so immersed in this concept of community uh, in the way we live our personal lives that we forget that, that that's not – the experience for everybody, that, that they have a strong, supportive community that really helps them feel good about themselves and feel like the, there's hope. And that's what it gave these folks, was gave them a chance to say, I, I don't have to be considered a loser forever. I can be cared for. I can have people who will take an interest in me, and they will support me and encourage me. And uh, that has been a foundational concept for almost any recovery program that exists. It's, it, people need other human beings, and they need other human beings who are going to be the kinds of human beings who help them aspire to something greater than just drinking. 
or in the, in the case of drugs, using drugs. So that was a that was a foundational concept, and and I, it did well for a long time. It it had a lot of controversy because of that concept that you talked about earlier, the sense of a moral failing, the somehow the individual was flawed. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to get into bait, to debating the, the pros and cons of uh, AA, but I will say that that's been probably the major difficulty that I've heard over and over again is a lot of people don't buy into that concept and the concept of a higher power. Yeah, it seems that uh, there are sort of uh, conf- well, there are conflicting views in, in the psychological world and, yes. and, and 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 in the recovery world. And it, it, I, I should start off this segment by saying it's not one size fits all. Absolutely, <laughs> there Absolutely. are different recovery programs for for different people, but the the concept of the traditional AA 12-step program, uh, as I understand it, is that uh, one sort of relinquishes personal control to a higher power. Exactly. And that higher power is not defined specifically, but it's sort of a uh, godlike image uh, of being a higher power. Something greater than yourself. But if you back up a little bit, it is a higher power means just something greater than yourself, whether it's your community that you talked about, your community or your group could be your higher power as opposed to a a godlike image. But this has caused controversy over over the years, and and part of the controversy is is although it's meshed in the the the, the religious part of it, it, is really the idea of giving up control. Exactly that 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 to recover one has to give up control. Now it seems like on the other side of the coin, from what I've read and, and followed is a school of thought that you have to exercise control mm-hmm. and exercise control over your behaviors and your addiction and and the the two concepts of the 12 steps and the control programs they're similar in that one both has to take responsibility for one's actions one has one has to make amends one has to change behavior but one seems to be i give up control to a higher power, right. and that will do it. And the other one is I have to gain control of of whatever the problem is that's causing me to drink, do drugs, right. gamble, whatever. And I think I think what you're you're saying is really is kind of at the heart of and, and and maybe it's a good thing because it, that caused a lot of people to challenge that perception. I think a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapies that psychologists use um, really say essentially you can change. You have the power to change. Um, I think that a lot of, of uh, some the more modern approaches to dealing with uh, addiction, for example, I'm trained in smart recovery and one of the one of the issues of smart recovery, which stands for self-management and uh, recovery training, what, what that says is you do have the power. In fact, you're the only one who has the power. And you get to drive 
how you're going to proceed, and you're going to figure out what is in your best interest. This is very much in line with the kind of thinking that's coming out of the uh, federal government through SAMHSA and uh, some of the, the current thinking that's going on across the country in the research that people really do need to drive their recovery, not have their recovery prescribed for them. AA is a wonderful thing, and it works very, very well for some people. The key word there is some. Right. And for others, it doesn't work. And those folks need something else. And that's where all these other things started coming into play. Uh, there's also a very big push right now for uh, medicated-assisted treatment, MAT. And uh, medicated-assisted treatment, we're, we're recognizing that a lot of people can get well if we can deal with their symptoms, if we can help them get past the urges. Vivitrol right now is working extremely well for people on heroin. Uh, Suboxone has worked well. Suboxone has problems because of its uh, ability to be misused, et cetera, and we could talk about that if you wish. But uh, methadone has been a proven treatment for some people. Cognitive behavioral therapy works very well for some people. Having some people live in a recovery house has worked very well for some people. Having some people working on an outpatient treatment uh, with a, a lot of support services has worked very well for some people. And, the, and the, the sooner we all get to the notion that we need a wide array of services, a wide array of approaches so that a person can find what he or she can work best with. The sooner we get to that, the better we're going to be as a society. I think we keep trying to come up with a, a fix, a magic fix. And there a, a isn't one, one size fits yeah, all. One, just yeah. find that magic pill or find that magic uh, treatment. Or, and, and the reality is human beings are so different. Our brains are different. Our development uh, patterns are different. Our life experiences are different. Why would we assume that every treatment or that everybody's going to react to the same treatment? It's not going to work. But now, as you 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 mentioned it, I had the mental vision of, of a buffet table, exactly. you know, and and you have all of these different entrees, uh, and you have now all of these different programs, and you can pick and choose those that work best, or or working in cooperation with a therapist or a counselor or whatever to pick and choose the 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 program that does best for you. Exactly. Uh, you know, so if you're uh, anti-12 step, if you think it's too religious and you say the heck with it, well, there's other options. Absolutely. <laughs> you don't yeah. have to say, okay, now that's an excuse not to be in recovery. It really comes down to what's now called a recovery-oriented system of care. And what that means is the individual, uh, they might not know how to make choices for themselves. They, 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 we can't expect everybody to know all these things. But what they can do is have some input. 
And working with competent professionals, they can say, you know, this is kind of who I am. I'm not into this whole religious thing, or I'm not, I don't do drugs, or, you know, whatever right. the case, uh, to drugs in the sense of I don't want to do more drugs to overcome drugs. Right. Um, so if you get to know that person, and you have a wide array of resources available to you, what you do is is you try to just pull all these service, uh, services together and kind of surround this person with um, doctors who understand recovery and make good decisions about helping them with their medical needs without feeding their habits, uh, providing community resources to help them get their lives together so that they can uh, make better uh, living arrangements and uh, be more satisfied in the way they live their lives. You, you pull together recovery uh, systems, treatments, uh, housing, rehab, detox, whatever is needed for that person to have the greatest likelihood of coming out the other side of this um, as a whole healthy person. It's expensive and it's difficult and it's time consuming. Americans are not real good with things that take a long right. time. Right. You cannot fix a person who is addicted in a week or a month or even six months or a year. It takes a long time. Yes, we can get them sober in a week. We can get them treatment in three to six weeks. We can get them into a recovery house for six months or a year. But there's, this is a lifetime thing that that person has to deal with. And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And there are all sorts of political issues around that. But when you see some of these people turn their lives around and you see they become tax-paying uh, productive citizens, when you see that they take care of their children, that they, they become involved in, in their communities, it's worth every penny. And the, the costs of not dealing with it are far higher as far as I'm concerned. I want to talk just a, a bit, if we could, Ron, about uh, what you do. You're executive director of the John W. Clem Recovery House in, in Athens, Ohio. Uh, but you're also president of the Ohio Recovery Housing uh, uh, Group. Uh, you're on a national board. Recovery houses, talk about those a little bit, how they fit into this buffet table of <laughs> – of, of, of help. Well, I, I really am glad you said it that way because I think we're only beginning to come to the point where, where society as a whole is recognizing that we are part of that continuum of care. We are uh, – uh, recovery houses are a very important uh, tool and are a very important part of the continuum of care for many people. And what it really does is it it serves – they go anywhere from uh, rehabs to just houses where people live who are in recovery and they share houses. And there's, there are some that are very structured. We have essentially four levels of recovery houses. Um, I don't want to bore your listeners with all of that. But, but the, the reality is, is it can provide an important transition between the fir person first getting sober – 
and developing the life skills and confidence and ability that they need to then go back out into their communities, go back to their families, go back to their lives if that's what they wish to do. Um, it provides them with essentially, here's, here are the basic components, a safe, home-like environment. Home-like is very critical in the way that we perceive it in the Ohio Recovery Housing and in the National Alliance for Recovery Residences. What we're saying is we want to provide a social model in which these folks get care, they're cared about, they learn how to live effectively without drugs and alcohol, they become a member of a family of sorts, they learn how to take responsibility for themselves and each other, they encourage each other, they support each other, they learn how to get back to a place if they ever were there, uh, or find how to get along with other human beings in a, in a uh, very positive environment versus some of the environments that they have come out of. So that, in a nutshell, is what recovery housing should be about, in our opinion. Unfortunately, for many, many years, recovery housing um, has had this blight of people, anybody if here in Ohio, for example, anybody can open a recovery house. All you have to do is say, you know, pay me some money and I'll give you a bed. Well, that's not a recovery no. house. That's a bed. That's a rooming house. It's a rooming house. And for, in fact, many of the places that were referred to as recovery houses were, in fact, nothing more than what I refer to as flop houses. Uh, they were not healthy. They were not productive. And they gave recovery housing a very bad name. Uh, a, a year or so ago, there was a there was a an article of maybe a, cu a couple of articles about recovery housing in uh, New York City, and it was very ugly. People were just abusing these people, taking their money, and giving them nothing in return except a bet. We at Ohio Recovery Housing, working, which is a an affiliate of the National Alliance of Recovery Residences set about the task of establishing very powerful standards that we say all good recovery houses should meet. And that it, those standards deal with the level of, of caring, the kind of environment, cleanliness, making sure that, the, that neighbors uh, were in on all of this, that, that people in recovery houses were good neighbors, that that anybody who ran a recovery house that was certified by the Ohio Recovery Housing Organization met high-quality standards for excellence in the ways that they operate, that they understood uh, the basics of effective recovery based on science and, and what we, we can know, and that anybody who went to one of our certified recovery houses was going to be safe and well cared for. And uh, we do not allow anybody to become a member unless we have gone through their uh, documentation and gone out inspected and inspected their homes and make sure that this is the kind of place that we can put our stamp of approval on and be proud of. We also have mechanisms in place. If somebody doesn't meet those standards, they cannot stay a member.
The state of Ohio has done a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of supporting this model and has put some money behind it. And the reality is that you can no longer get a state grant from in Ohio for recovery housing unless you meet our standards. You don't necessarily have to be a member of our organization, but you have to meet, meet our standards. standards. And that's a good thing. The national organization, I, I'm working on a, a committee for standards for the national organization, and uh, we are, the, the standards are becoming more and more stringent. And, and the goal isn't to make a lot of paperwork and difficulty for people who wanna, want to open recovery houses, but to ensure that the people who get in those recovery houses are safe and well cared for. Because they're still so vulnerable. They're absolutely vulnerable, and they believe anything that they want so desperately to get well that, that yeah. it, all you have to do is say, we'll take good care of you. Uh, you'll, you'll be well in a period of time. Well, when you start projecting time frames, you're in real trouble to begin with. But they don't know that. And if the house looks nice from the outside or something, they go, oh, okay, this must be a good deal. But they could be with people who really give them very bad information. I noticed uh, on an article I read the, uh, on a national level, you're talking about code of ethics yes. as, as, as well for all of these, not only standards, but ethics within the, the, the group of recovery houses nationwide. Absolutely. In fact, um, I was part of the committee that wrote the code of ethics that uh, now NAR, the National Alliance, expects that every state affiliate, and I think there are 20, some 25 maybe, state affiliates um, in this country so far, uh, all of them and all of the recovery houses that fall under those state affiliates that are certified adopt that set of code of ethics. And so that the idea there again is we want to help people be feel comfortable that when they go into a certified house, certified by NAR or ORH in our case here in Ohio, uh, that is a place they can count on. I think that we're now in a point with society, especially with the uh, uh, opiate epidemic that, yes. that we're going through and as well as the continuation of, of alcohol of, as a problem that a lot of people are despairing and yes. thinking that uh, there is no hope. Yet on an individual basis and on a societal basis, you deal with this every day. Are you still hopeful? I am. I am hopeful, particularly for individuals. I, I see so many people on a daily basis who make it. I know it can happen for some people. I also see many people for whom uh, they have given up hope and they, they're unable to get past it. And I continue to hope for them that there will come a day when they truly are able to make that transition. Uh, in terms of the larger societal issues, I think I, I continue to be hopeful that's because I, that's who I want to be. But um, I think there are lots of serious issues that we as a, a country have to deal with. And I think if, you, if people can't find meaningful work, if people don't have social networks that they can fall back on in times of trouble, if families can't 
afford to live their lives in meaningful ways and they can't support each other because of, of their life circumstances, we have some very, very serious problems. Um, by the same token, I, I believe that we can solve a lot of the problems that we have. And I think that there are a lot of people who understand that this is much bigger than just coming up with a, a CARA Act or something like mm -hmm. that. It's bigger than uh, coming up with medically assisted treatment. We have to have the infrastructure in this country that says that people matter and that we want to support people and we've got to create hope by the ways that we set up our society. And not only at the at the jobs and, and that level, uh, but you were a guardian ad litem for, for uh, still a period am, yes. to, uh, and still are. You know, we have to, it seems to me, address issues in the home. Absolutely. And, and issues of child neglect and child abuse because uh, if a child's abused, uh, that's sort of a gift that keeps on giving oh, through, throughout their life, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. We have got to intervene in the lives of children much earlier. Uh, provide I, by intervene, I don't mean removing them necessarily no, no, from no, their families. No, no. What I do mean, though, is when we see children in trouble, we can't just turn our heads and walk away and wait until it becomes a big enough issue that Children's Services gets involved. Uh, children are affected by everything they see and hear. This notion that, that children are totally resilient and they aren't aware of the bad stuff in the world is ridiculous. Children are much more conscious of what's going on in their, li in their lives. If their parents are fighting because of finances, if they're fighting because one of them or both of them is using drugs, if they are hurting each other, if they are, if they are living in poverty and they can't, uh, they can't even afford food, children are aware of all of that stuff, and it is having an impact on them. We all know that there are lots of ugly things that go on in the world, and children who are exposed to that are much more likely. In fact, uh, the statistical data is just astounding. The more trauma a child experiences, the, the exponentially the, the numbers grow in terms of their potential for becoming drug addicts or, or alcoholics or committing crimes or being the, the uh, uh, victims of, of crime, rape, violence, whatever. It's, uh, we've got to be involved, and, and it, it costs money, and a lot of people don't like hearing that. Well, all of this costs money, and yes. all of this is a societal issue that it Absolutely. seems that if we don't place some resources behind, the problem's going to just keep growing and well, growing. It's you know the old expression, you can pay now or you can pay later. It's <laughs> which, do, which do you prefer but to you, do? That chain has to be broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ron, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. Well, I really you. appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. 
Today, we've talked with Ron Luce, a board member of the National Alliance for Recovery Residences and president of Ohio Recovery Housing, about issues facing alcoholics and drug addicts during the holidays and the expanding array of treatment programs available. This podcast is produced by WWB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at Ohio. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at Ohio.edu.